I trust for those who were a part of the last Future of Heritage meeting that that last verse has a new clarity in its meaning to it and will continue to grow upon you as the years go by as we call the angels to marvel at the variegated wisdom of God by what he is doing in his church. If you would turn with me to the 21st chapter of Matthew, thank you for your attention to our liturgical posture of standing in the honor of the reading of God's Word, and so we will now come to His Word with great gravity and great respect, with very thankful hearts that He has given us this witness of Himself and His kingdom. Now, if you would hear the Word of God, beginning at verse 1 through verse 13. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who were before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude says, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned their tables of money, of the money changers, and the seat of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Our gracious Father, as we consider your word this morning, we pray that you would open up our heart of understanding, that with our minds of that heart, that you would give us faith, so that we could see with our eyes and hear with our ears and with our hearts understand and perceive our great King and his kingdom. We pray the Holy Spirit would fill us and fill this place with your glory, that we can behold your glory and so be changed from glory to glory into your likeness. Grant, O Lord, your Spirit to give us the spiritual discernment of the Word of God, for it is the eyes of faith only that can hear, and the Spirit must give us discernment in these spiritual things. So we call upon you to give us and understanding of this holy word. We pray that as the word is preached, that you would work through the the preacher and that you would calm uh, all of the distracting thoughts and pray that you would now take command of this time in him and the hearer, that you would apply these things to our lives, that we would leave here being doers of the word and not hearers only. We entrust all of this into your care in Jesus' name. 
Amen. You may be seated. A lot of craziness is going on in the world today, in case you haven't noticed. It's, we have interesting responses to how we think about the world around us and, and how we are to live as Christians in this crazy world. It's notable that Jesus is now coming to the very last week of his earthly ministry in the sense of what he came to accomplish. And now things are coming to a head and he is now openly going to present himself to all of the world to see who he was. This is a formal and a public presentation as he enters into Jerusalem And the precision of the prophecies in their fulfillment, both in their timing and in the manner of their prophecy, and in the manner and timing of the fulfillment, were orchestrated by God, even governed by Jesus himself, so that this was precise, particular, and all of it revelatory revelatory for us to understand who this Jesus is and the nature of his kingdom. His entry into Jerusalem at this particular time, in this specific manner, was a public presentation of himself as Messiah and King. It was not many months before the crowds of Jerusalem specifically asked him, if you're the Messiah, tell us. And sometimes he would actually forbid people from going and telling what he has done and who he is for those who actually knew. After feeding the crowd of 5,000, crowds were prepared to make him king. And he dismissed the crowds and he disallowed them making him king in their way and in their timing. But now there's a specific time, and it's God's way and God's timing that he declares openly that he is indeed the promised Messiah. He's no longer speaking these matters in parables. He is openly declaring explicitly that he is the long prophet that Moses had prophesied. He is the great king that will now sit upon David's throne, and he is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is the anointed one, the Messiah, and here he is. The timing of Messiah's coming had long been foretold, and we might reflect back upon Daniel when he was exiled in the Babylonian exile. And there God had used his tremendous gift that the Spirit of God gave to Daniel in terms of the being a prophet, and not only um, in the time of Babylon, but for the years to come. He elevated Daniel even among the sages of the wise men of the Babylonian empire. Of course, they're coming at it from a completely different perspective. But the king sees the great gift and Daniel's ability to 
interpret the dream. And of course, it wasn't Daniel. He gave credit to God. Only God can do this. It was God that gave the dream. God must give the interpretation. It is God that gives his word. It must be God that gives the interpretation. And Daniel, in captivity there, elevated to a very high place in the, of the sages and of the wise men in Babylon, God would begin to reveal his plan to Daniel. At times, it was very overwhelming for him. But we see in that ninth chapter some very specific timing of when the Messiah would come, the king that would sit on David's throne, and this kingdom that will be everlasting. Everlasting. It's a concept that we, we really cannot apprehend. The Holy Spirit was revealing to Daniel with precision the time that Messiah would come. A study there which is beyond the scope of our time this morning would see 77s, the term weak there used in Daniel is really the word sevens, and because of that the translators have often put weeks, it's not weeks in the literal, it's sevens, 77s. And as we see these 77s as 70 of seven years, and then we look at the prophecy which began at the time, um, and there were three potential beginnings for which that prophecy could have begun, but as we see about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, at the beginning of that, now Daniel's prophecy is precisely in the time of Jesus' ministry. And there should be no question that this was foretold and who this person is. Remember after Jesus was born that wise men, sages from the east, traveled because they had seen his star. These were the trained astrologers and astronomers from the east likely shared in that upper court with Daniel, and yet not with clarity of understanding of these things. They knew what to look for, and they knew when to look for them, and they came because they heard that a king had been born. But not only do we see the prophesied timing of the coming of Messiah fitting right into Jesus' ministry, and He is the one fulfilling those prophecies, beyond which they could not be fulfilled. But we also see the timing of his entrance was also chosen to present himself as Messiah. The season was Passover. This was the highest Jewish festival of the year. And many preparations had been made and many people traveled from afar on foot that took them many days to get to Jerusalem to celebrate this great feast. Many of the Galileans traveled to Jerusalem on this occasion. And it was in Galilee that Jesus spent most of His days of His earthly ministry. Very few actually in Jerusalem. But you had many Galileans who knew who Jesus was and knew His background and they've seen miracles and, and they were there in Jerusalem. 
The native Jerusalem Jews were there. Many from afar had come. This was a big occasion with many crowds swelling the city to the extent that there were no room in the inns. And many would then find their lodgings that would take place for well over a week in Jerusalem out in the streets. And and the city was lively with with. This time of this season, many commentators believe that the very day in which Jesus entered, that this passage speaks of, was on the first day of the week, our Sunday, that we now call the Lord's Day. On that particular day, that would have been on this first day in which Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the 14th day of the month of Nisan. When the Passover lamb would be chosen, I'm sorry, the 10th day of the month of Nisan. And on the 10th day, the Passover lamb would be chosen and it would be kept until the 14th day at twilight then would be slain and the Passover would be begun, followed by a week of, of celebration and of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is inseparable from and a part of the Passover festival. And so on this 10th day of the month of Nisan, which Nisan was the beginning of the month, and Jesus, or God, changed the calendar around the time of the Passover. Now here is Jesus coming into Jerusalem as the King, as the Passover Lamb. And that's why when He enters in Jerusalem, the first matter of business He takes care of is going and overturning all of the money changing and the sacrificial um, marketeering that was going on in his temple. That's why the market of selling of these sacrificial animals would have been going on on the temple on this day, because people were trying to get their sacrifices ready and preserved for the day of the Passover among additional offerings and sacrifices. It was a big, big thing that was going on within the courtyard of the temple there. But this would mark the last Passover that the Jews would ever have to observe. This was the last one. Because Jesus was there to fulfill it. And what is interesting about His entry into Jerusalem publicly presenting himself and declaring himself in no uncertain terms that he is the Messiah, is the manner in which he rode into Jerusalem as he presented himself. That manner has been not really appreciated. It's not well understood in the day in which the Jews were there, and it's not really well understood, embraced, and believed in the way I believe that Oftentimes we live. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. In that prophecy, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. 
It is in that particular context that Zechariah tells us of a king. A king who would come sitting on the throne of David and would reign in an everlasting dominion whose kingdom would know no end. This is the everlasting kingdom of which the Jews had hoped for, longed for, prayed for. Decade after decade and century after century. So this is a very important event in Jesus' presentation of himself as that very prophesied king. But the point here that Matthew particularly wants to draw our attention to is the manner of this fulfillment. Lowly and riding on a donkey. Lowly. This is the manner of our great king. And this is the manner of his kingdom. And this is the manner of the subjects of his kingdom. The word lowly refers more than just Messiah's poverty and meekness of spirit. It has the idea even of being afflicted and oppressed and it encompasses his entire suffering as the life of Christ. From the time that little Jesus was born and took upon flesh, his entire earthly life was a life of suffering. He had to fulfill all righteousness, not succumbing to any temptation, fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law of God, while constantly being tempted and drawn away from that. In Zechariah's description of a king lowly and riding upon the donkey, closely parallels the description in Isaiah 53, which says he was despised, And rejected of men, he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. When Jesus first appeared, it's only the eye of faith that could see his royalty. The picture of Jesus riding on a donkey further defines His humbleness, His humility, His humble obedience. This would make a subtle point, but as He's riding on a young colt that had never been ridden before, without having been broke, this young colt peaceably received and calmly bore its rider for this very special occasion. And that also, I believe, in an indirect and subtle way, presents something about the manner of Jesus' kingdom. He rules over all. 
The wind and the waves obey his voice. The weather does all of his bidding. All of the, of the angels perfectly do his will. And now even the beast of burden does something that he wouldn't have done for any other person. He is ruler over all. All of his creation at every moment in time. And the significance here of the Messiah, this great king, coming in on the donkey, it was not that the donkey was of a lowly creature compared to a stately horse. In ancient times, both donkeys and horses were used for royal mounts. The people's response to Jesus when he rode into Jerusalem was not one of surprise. Oh, why is he riding on a donkey? It wasn't that. But they rather recognized and acknowledged him as king without that kind of surprise. But the significance was that horses were war machines. They were associated with chariots and battle bows. And therefore, often they were associated with self-reliance and distrust of God. That is why God said to the kings of Israel, before there ever was a king in Israel, in the law of God from Deuteronomy, says, now when you get a king, the kings are not to go back to Egypt and collect horses and chariots. Don't do that. Egypt was known for their horses and chariots. Symbols of military strength and might. And the Lord did not want the strength of Israel to come from a dependence upon or a trust in the machines of war. He forbade specifically that the kings not rely upon their military strength because it would keep them from relying upon Him. Do you know how many battles God fought for Israel without them ever having to do a thing except trusting? How did He get rid of Pharaoh's army when they were chasing them through the wilderness? Israel didn't even own a sword at that time. But God took care of that through the raging waters of the Red Sea that had baptized His people, but now had become the judgment of His enemies. One of the greatest battles, the battle of Jeruel, was the time in which the nation of Israel was surrounded by an allied force that far outnumbered the nation. And the people humbled themselves and they got on their face and they prayed. And God says, you will not have to fight this battle. But He told them to go out and line up in battle array in the morning. And so they did. They get up in the morning, they go up in battle array, and then it was appointed to the priest who would lead the praise. And they began singing the most common psalm refrain in all of Scripture, for praise the Lord, for He is good and His mercy endureth forever. We, we, we repeated that this morning. That phrase is a common song theme throughout all the Psalter. 
And when the people began praising the Lord, then God set an ambush and the enemy destroyed themselves. What they had to do was worship. What God had to do was take care of the problem. So he comes riding on a donkey, not a war horse. Jesus was unwavering in his dependence and trust in God. In his humility, he had to trust in God, his Father. That's something that's hard to comprehend. He's God. He, he, he himself is God of heaven, is he not? He is the creator, is he not? Yes, he is. But he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And he is called the author and the finisher of our faith, meaning he's the pioneer. He had to trust his father and his father's will. He had to trust everything that his father had laid out, and he did, and he was obedient. And he comes riding on a donkey as the indication of that humility and complete reliance upon God. And even the details of the donkey, Christ is fulfilling righteousness. And this is how Jesus rules. He, he rules in humble reliance on God for everything. That is how He wants us to follow. In humble reliance on God for everything. That's how we're to live. Not any different from our Master who showed us. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, He was announcing that the King of the everlasting kingdom had finally come. It is here. It is, it is I. Me. I. I. Don't know. But see, the manner of that entry was one of humility, not pomp and circumstance, not of pride and trusting in human ability. And the manner of His arrival, hear me now, displays the nature of His kingdom. On June the 2nd, 1953, Queen Elizabeth II was crowned the Queen of England. I mentioned this one particularly because her reign has been the longest reign of any monarch, and she is still on the throne after 68 years and of 95 years of age. Much to the chagrin probably of Charles, who's getting quite old. Uh, but at the time of her coronation in 1953, there was great extravagance. A service was held in Westminster Abbey, and the preparations for that coronation had taken many, many weeks in preparation. And it's what really most of us, beyond what most of us, can really conceive. And for the first time in any coronation, it was televised, so the whole world could see this. Special music was arranged for that particular occasion. Rolf von Williams 
uh, arranged a, a version of Psalm 100 that, that we sing and that we use this day. And that was right from the composition directed toward this particular occasion of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. Dignitaries from around the world were in attendance. This is quite in contrast to Jesus' coronation. Instead of arriving at his coronation in a horse-drawn carriage, he arrived lowly, sitting upon a young donkey colt. And while Jesus presented himself openly as the Messiah, Israel's great prophesied king, it was not pompous, but a display of humility. That that... That is, in some ways, an inconceivable paradox for the Jews, and I believe sometimes for us to conceive how this can be. He had been teaching his disciples over and over and over the nature of his kingdom. And it was hard for them, and I think sometimes us, to appreciate it. But notice the people's response. He comes in and the people cut down palm branches and spread it before Him as He rode into Jerusalem. And they shouted, Hosanna, the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Palm trees at that time were a symbol of the region of Judea. In fact, there was a coin that was minted with a Caesar picture on the one side. On the back side were palm branches or a palm tree. The palm branches were a kind of communication of nationalistic aspirations. And it is clear that when they took palm branches and laid it before Jesus as the king came into Jerusalem. They had something clearly in mind when they did this. It was a deliberate action. And they said, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The people are directly quoting at this particular time that passage of which we meditated on in the beginning from Psalm 118. But here they're, they're quoting from verse 25 and 26. And, and Psalm 18, verse 25 and 26, with this phrase, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the only time in all of Old Testament Scripture that that phrase is used. The only time. The Hallel Psalms, of which Psalm 8, 118 is the last of, the Hallel Psalms go from 113 to 118. And the Hallel Psalms were traditionally chanted at the time of these great feasts, and particularly at Passover. But the specific use in the particular section of Psalm 118 that the people chanted on this occasion would have been very deliberate in a conscience use of that psalm. Hosanna is a transliteration. A transliteration really is when you take Hebrew letters and you try to transliterate them 
letter for letter into the English language. The word baptism is a transliteration because the Greek is baptizo. And there's, so you take the, the source language and you take the target language and it's the letter for letter equivalent if you can. And so here we have Hosanna, but it's translated, what it means is save now, save now. That's what Hosanna means. Save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now in the highest. That's what they were shouting. When they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh, what's notable here is that the immediate preceding context that you reflected on, from which they were chanting at this moment, spoke of the stone which the builders rejected, he would become the chief cornerstone, the head of the corner. The focus in Psalm 118 about that particular uh, verse is not so much that the builders rejected the stone as much as it is he, in that rejection, becomes the very chief stone of them all on which a new building would be built. And that is reflection of the phrase that we come, this is the day. What is this day referring to? It's referring to the day when Jesus built the kingdom. It's referring to the resurrection day, and hence the reason we meet on the first day of the week, and not the seventh. This is the day which has been prophesied from days of old and years, and here it was, the time of this coming, and when the builders reject Jesus, speaking about the crucifixion that would happen just not many days from this current occasion, this day which the Lord has made is not speaking about the crucifixion day, but the resurrection day, because everything in Scripture must be interpreted in light of the resurrection. And that's the day we rejoice in. And this day is our day of rejoicing in that resurrection, every Lord's Day. Now in addition to this, that, we, that Matthew has given us of what they were shouting at this occasion, they actually had chanted a lot of other things. Son of David! In fact, Luke 19, 20, or 38 records more specifically what the people were saying when he records this. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of Yahweh. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And John 12.13 adds another line also saying, even the King of Israel. This is what the people were saying. Every one of those sayings of which the people were shouting out before Christ coming into Jerusalem lowly and riding on a donkey are full of royal messianic expectation. And they all end with praise to God Himself. 
If you were combining all of this together from Luke's edition and from John's edition and from Matthew's edition, not only pulling the quotes that they pulled from Psalm 118, but from Isaiah 62 and from all of the other scriptures acknowledging the son of David and blessed is the king, the king of Israel. When they say all as you pull it all together, what they are saying is Jesus is David's son. The great Son, who would sit upon the throne of the everlasting kingdom. He is the King of Israel. And with His coming, the coming of David's everlasting kingdom would be brought in. Salvation is also connected with this, Hosanna, save now, O King, Son of David, from the highest. And all of that was to praise to God. In the highest. All of this was theological truth embedded in all these things. And they were all right. They were all truthful. What they were saying was spot on for the occasion. And for ours as well. However, their understanding of the whole matter was was skewed. Very much like the disciples who just did not have the comprehension of all these things at the moment. They had pictured the Davidic kingdom much differently. And while their picture of worldwide contest, or conquest and a, a complete and final overthrow from all of their oppressors of the world, particularly at that time the Roman Empire, that, that will come. It will eventually come. But there's so much more to it. There was so much more than to God's kingdom here on earth and just the overthrow of oppressors. Though that will be a part of it, but there's so much more. So first and foremost was to establish the character of His kingdom. His scepter would be a scepter of righteousness. The character would be lowly and of humility. It would be a triumphant kingdom that would rule over all of the earthly enemies. That would be true, but it would be true God's way and in the manner of Christ. And that would come about through suffering as an instrument of righteousness and peace. That's what Jesus said. And this has every bit to do with how you think about Christ and how you think about God's kingdom in the world today. See, the fact is, Christ is king today. He is reigning and ruling over all the affairs of the earth. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. We are not waiting for him to become that. He is that and has been that for over 2,000 years. There's still some unfinished business to clear up. There are still some things to fulfill. But he has been reigning over all for 2,000 years. A very popular teaching from dispensational theology that has been propagated from pulpits all over America and all over the airwaves says that Christ will reign when he returns on His second coming. 
A coming when she then sets up a thousand year millennial reign. Then he will reign upon the earth and we will reign with him. That's what they teach. And that's erroneous and it is unbiblical. Christ is reigning now. He has ascended. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is reigning over all of the affairs of the earth. Not just the nations which are a drop in the bucket to sovereign almighty Yahweh. But reigning over all. Over the winds. Over the, the, the sea. Over the donkeys. Which he made, by the way, talk in the Old Testament once. Right? Over everything. Over COVID. Over sickness. Over health. Over everything at all times. And there's not a single occasion that has slipped his notice. And not a single event. It has gone by that he hasn't been completely in control of how that event turns out. The dispensationalists read the headlines and they look for things happening in the world today and they say things are getting worse and worse. And I, I tell you what, if you spend more time with Fox News than you do in the Bible, you too are going to have a skewed view of the kingdom. Weigh it in the balance. How many times, how many minutes, how many hours have I spent on Fox News this past week versus how much time I've been in the Word? I wonder how many people believe, Christians believe, that the world is getting worse and worse and worse today. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Have you lost hope that Jesus is really sovereign and ruler over the United States of America? Did he ever promise or prophesy that the United States of America would be the everlasting kingdom? Is that what you have your hope in? Do you think Christ's cause here on this soil is defeated or ever will be defeated? Do you believe that? Do you act like that? Do you say, I don't believe that, but the way you live your life shows that you actually do? How are you thinking about the current events in light of the kingship of Jesus Christ? That's the question. It's an important question to address, I think, particularly for American Christians. I think it's particular for all Christians, but I think it was... I think it was a good question for the Crusaders. I think it's a good question for the Jewish wars. I think it was a good question, but I think it's a good question for us. Because some here, American Christians, have given up hope. They've given up hope. Oh, we're be, our nation is beyond the hope of the gospel. God's word says the hope of glory is in you. Christ in you. Not the United States of America, not red, white, and blue blood, but Christ in you, the hope of glory, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. By the way, that means He is the King of 
Biden. He is lording over Afghanistan, over North Korea, over China. He's in control. Absolutely in control. He was lord over Nebuchadnezzar, the one who literally came in and took God's people out of their land by force and slaughtered a whole slew of them. But he had to show Nebuchadnezzar who was lord. Daniel 4, Daniel 5. Didn't change the people's lot at that time, but if the people were faithful to God, the remnant, God blessed them in Babylon. See, that's part of what you need to appreciate and own. But how are you thinking about the lordship of Jesus Christ and His kingship around all the current events that are going on and the craziness of this world. It's an important question to ask because some people have just given up hope. Others are merely wasting their lives because they think the world is getting worse and worse until the return of Christ. So they dwindle away their time. Because they think they have very little hope and that anything will ever good come. So why do we labor to change the world? In fact, they live like, well, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. They, they live in a parallel way. I'm talking about Christians here. That believe the resurrection with their Hearts, but they deny it with the way they live. They have very little hope that any good will ever come to change this world. If you have very little hope that any good is going to come about to change this world, you're going to do very little about it, and you're not going to do very much kingly worthy activity. What's the use, right? That's kind of the idea. It really isn't something that will stifle your Christian energy. Jesus spoke to that. Jesus spoke to that a number of times. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. When I ascend on high, I am going to send my Spirit, and He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And He's going to do that through you. I am resurrected and I am the life. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now you go and make disciples of the nations. Do not be afraid of them, nor fear for your life. Only fear should be the one to the one who can destroy both life and soul in hell. Do not fear men. Satan cannot overthrow this world. He cannot overthrow this world. The question, do you believe that? I'm really, I'm, I'm seeking to the depths of your heart. Do you believe that he cannot overthrow the, you know why? Because Jesus already has. He has conquered. And the Bible clearly says that Jesus will reign until all of his enemies have been put under his feet by God the Father, including the last enemy, death itself, when he comes back. But until then, he's continuing to reign until the other enemies are brought in subjection to him and bow down to him. 
Either through their conversion or through their slaughter. His kingdom here is growing on earth. Do you believe that? Do you believe his kingdom is growing? It's an everlasting kingdom. He has been reigning for 2,000 years. What is it that I'm missing here? If what I'm saying is truth and of the word of God, you have to digest it, own it, believe it, and give your life to it, even to the point of death. He said this already, did he not? Serving in love to the point of sacrifice, even the sacrifice of your life, because if you give your life for his sake, you will find it. Others are responding to all of this because they're just afraid. They're afraid. They're looking around and they're fearful. This is how they are reacting to the world around them. Jesus spoke to that. Do not be fearful of those who can kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? Not from your father's knowledge. From your father's will. A sparrow. Insignificant. How many sparrows have fallen out of the the sky today? How many carcasses are you going to pass on Sulphur Creek on the way home? How many things happen on a daily basis and not one of them happens apart from God's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are much more valuable than the sparrows. Jesus instructed his disciples over and over and over again not to think of his kingdom the same way that the world views their kingdoms. He just got finished telling us in the previous chapter, it's not like that, James and John and mother of Zebedee. It's not like that. You're coming asking your sons to be great in the way that you're thinking greatness. But I'm telling you that greatness is not the way you're thinking about it. It's not like the Gentiles who lord it over them. That's not greatness. And we need to think about Christ and the character of His kingdom, the manner He rode in, and not view it the way that the world views greatness, not what the world values and how it thinks about these things. Mechanical, military, empowered kingdoms will always fall. Always. Including the United States of America with the most powerful military. In fact, you're seeing it crumble right before our very eyes. Do not let your heart fret or be worried over these things. You are a part of an everlasting kingdom. And it's a very exciting time to live, even with the difficulties that are coming our way. Jesus' kingdom will never fail. But Jesus' kingdom is not militarily empowered. The character of His kingdom is very different than the kingdom's of the world. It is characterized by humility. Humility. It is characterized by righteousness. That's the scepter of his kingdom. It's a scepter of righteousness. It's characterized by peace.
And by a priestly character that we'll consider next time. A priestly character after the order of Melchizedek. Which is a word that comes from two Hebrew words. Righteousness, Zedek, Melech, King. The king of righteousness who was the king of peace. It's a kingdom that is characterized by love. Greatness is defined as service, not lording it over like the world does. And it will require sufferings in this era which will be greatly blessed and rewarded in that which is to come in glory. But these sufferings will have an end. Do you believe that? Have you given your life to those truths? Folks, as we live out our lives under the ever-increasing tyranny of our nation's government, we must have a proper view of God's kingdom in order to be faithful. I'm here to tell you that faith precedes understanding, not the other way around. I'm here to promote Augustine's message over the Pelagius one. And to understand and to live properly in the kingdom requires faith. The just shall live by faith. And faith will move us in the right kind of action. It will not wait around for the end of the world. Faith will see Christ on the throne now. And it will not grow hopeless when our nation has a weak president. Or lose hope in the triumphant nature of the church. it will also not feel confident when we have a stupendous president in Washington at the White House. Please understand that. Our president is not the savior of this nation. And he never will be. I don't care how good the man is. Do not place your hope in princes. Right. Our nation's destiny is not in the hands of men. The outcome of our nation will not be determined by its military might. American Christians themselves and you personally are going to have to come to terms with how you view these things. Many Christians in our nations today are stockpiling guns, guns and ammunition. You need to come to terms with that. I'm not suggesting you should or should not do that. Hear me what I'm saying here. You need to understand the nature of Christ's kingdom. So you will have a proper view of how to view all of that. What is the cause? What is the purpose? How will it advance? And what will be your manner? Is your worldview more dominion-minded in the worldly sense or in the sense that Christ reveals here lowly and riding on a donkey? Because the nature of the king and his entrance and the kingdom is going to be that for his people. I'm not promoting pacifism, but rather faith and character. A belief that Jesus is reigning, and I want you to believe that. I'm promoting a belief in His kingdom, and His kingdom will advance, and I want you to believe that. 
I'm promoting a belief in the church triumphant that will never be defeated, and I want you to heartily believe that. I'm promoting a belief in the character of the kingdom and the very means by which He takes dominion, humility, repentance, meekness, righteousness, mercy, having a pure heart, being a peacemaker and be willing and even rejoice and being persecuted for righteousness sake. And all I did is just give you the Beatitudes. That's the character of the kingdom. I want you to have a belief that Christ is ruling today over all of the affairs of the earth. Not just over presidents and, and dictators and tyrants, but over your health. Over the affairs of every detail of your relationships in your home. Over your marriage. He is ruling today. And I want you to believe that so you can govern your life according to His sovereignty and rely upon His infinite power. If you don't believe it, you will not be empowered. I want you to believe today that it is not with worldly military might or munitions or warlording war lording that's going to be or is ever the manner of Christ and the character of His kingdom, but it's quite the opposite of that. And you have to come to terms with those truths. You have to flesh that all out in your own worldview. And I hope when you do, it's a biblical worldview. You didn't come on a war horse. There's a time for that. And it's His time in His way. But it's Him. You've got to come to terms with these things. We're the credit card society that wants it now. Wants it now. We only view it now. We interpret it because of our immediate context now. Our sense of history is about what happened last week. And that will affect your worldview if that's the depth of it. A recent book, and the reason I bring this up is because it was written by a, a professing atheist, Tom Holland. The name of the book is Dominion. And what's interesting about this particular book, which is about this thick on some of the history of Western civilization, is that while this professing atheist holds to his particular atheistic, humanistic beliefs. He cannot help but, and through scholarly interpretation provide, shows us that all of the advancement and the rise of the Western civilization is due to Christianity. The spread of the gospel. The ethical advancements in the world from the way that women have been treated in the past to slaves to the fatherless and all of the oppressed and all of those ethical treatments have then come up to a very high place because of Christianity. The technological advances of the West because of Christianity. The archaeological advancements, Christianity. The artistic and musical advancements, Christianity is the reason. Oh yeah, there have been lots of unbelievers that borrow from our worldview. 
and certainly produce things. And even technology can be grossly maligned like it often is, but it is because of the regenerate mind and what God has done through the gospel of which this world is advanced as it is. Every positive advancement in this world that took a long time are all due to the influence of Christ and His followers. And it took a long time. It takes this atheist sometimes to tell us these things so we can see it over the big picture. And my hope and prayer for you is that your faith becomes so strong that Christ is real. He is actively reigning. His kingdom is advancing. So that you will never falter in your faith. And that you'll get your nose out of Fox News and in the Word of God and His promises and see the clarity for yourself. And believe it. And talk about these things more than you talk about what's happening in the world. Talk about His reign and His triumph. Talk about the beauty of what He's doing and the glory of His name. That will turn the world upside down. And let the Word of God become the guide for you. You've been catechized in a particular society with a particular culture, but let the Word of God reform your mind and transform it. That is our role here is to fulfill the will of God according to the will of God and the Word of God. And He's given us into such a time as this to change the world. Now, how are you going to go about it? Like an ancient Jew tried? Or like your master who comes riding lowly and on a donkey. Every one of the twelve gave their lives. Of course, Judas was the son of perdition. The other ten would die a martyr's death and one would die in exile. They got the message. They finally got it. How to advance over the enemy. And take enemy territory. And claim ground for Christ. And how your personal character plays such a role in the long term view of Christ's kingdom. And may God help us to understand with our hearts the manifold wisdom and the power of God in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, the King, our King. And not just the Jews' King. He's the King over all. Do you truly believe it? Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant us wisdom. A wisdom of the heart and faith to believe these things, to give our lives to them. And so order our life according to what these truths are. Keep us from major mistakes. Keep us from skewed worldviews. Keep us from um, action or inaction that does not glorify you. And I pray, Lord God, that you would bless your people with the truth. And when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. No matter who's in charge, no matter what tyrant will come, no matter what the civil magistrate may do, no one can separate us from the love of God or the liberty that we have in Christ. May we be faithful to the end and may we Count for the kingdom in the manner that our Lord has shown us Himself. Lowly, in humility, we follow our great King. Grant us the grace we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.